HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with just Linda. <laughs> you have an Italian last name. What is it? Pugliese. But it's something you just told me you never really pronounced as a child. No, because nobody ever pronounced it properly. It would you, be like Puglisi. One time I even got pole juice. I don't know how they juice, yeah. got that out of the... <laughs> um, it's, I guess when I moved to New York, there are more people around that are you know familiar with... Puglia, which is where the name comes from in Italy. Yeah. So, I mean, no. you didn't grow up in a large Italian neighborhood. No, no. No, my family, the majority of my extended family in the States is in New York, actually. My dad grew up not far from here in Brooklyn. And um, most of my parents moved to Maryland, which is where I grew up. Oh, the Chesapeake. So, <laughs> yeah, not, right the Chesapeake. so not Italy. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> not even close. I mean, what I know of it is uh, obviously crabs and Old yeah. Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside of that, uh, isn't there some like beef sandwich like pit beef or i don't know no. about a beef sandwich. yeah i, I mean crabs was a big part of my upbringing which i'm really thankful for actually it's sort of an interesting uh cultural thing to have i feel like in the states um but other than that it was mostly just you know sailboats everywhere it was be- i mean it's a beautiful i grew up in annapolis it's really gorgeous there yeah i mean what was your family life like was it you know very it sounds nautical down there. Was it full of crabs or was it more along your Italian heritage? It was sort of a mix of both. I guess the most, um, I guess my father was the most food influential. He was on the Italian side and he always really loved to cook. And, um, my mom 
doesn't didn't and still doesn't really cook all that much. And so my father was always sort of trying to combine, uh, you know, crabs and the Maryland way of doing things with his Italian background. Yeah. What were some of the dishes? Um, he always really loved to make trippino, which is like, a you know, the yeah. seafood sort of saucy soup. Sort yeah. Of thing. <laughs> I don't know. It changed to soup and sauce sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I don't know crabs he would always he would actually bring crabs to new york when we would come for the feast of seven fish with our family on christmas um i remember we would always go and pick up a whole bushel of crabs to lug up to new york city yeah i think actually i did feast of seven fishes really for the first time this year tried to do a crab pasta with old bray old bay breadcrumbs oh neat um, and um it's funny how those things kind of insert themselves into your heritage you know you try to take from where you grew up and instill it in, in, in whatever, you know, culture or cuisine you're dealing with. And I know your work very well. You're a wonderful commercial photographer, but you're also have this, this rooted infatuation with pasta. Yeah. (laughs) Which started, I guess, I guess seven or so years ago. Um, so my dad passed away and I reached out to, he was really, really in touch with everybody, all of our family in Italy, which I have quite a lot. And, um, I reached out to them after his death and found I have this whole new family that I didn't even really know about that was so excited to have me around. And one of my cousins there contacted me to tell me she was moving to New York. And so I offered to have her stay with me for the beginning and then she would find a place. Turned out she ended up living with me for about a year And I wanted to make her feel at home. And so I decided, you know, she said she ate pasta every day. So we were going to eat pasta every day. And I just started. And actually, before that, I barely even ever ate pasta. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at holidays and everything. But it wasn't a big part of the diet. And we're not we're not talking just like dry extruded. We're talking about fresh pasta. No, I'm an overachiever. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, every night I was making fresh pasta. So I was, you know, researching it like crazy because you get bored eating the same stuff all the time. Um, and my cousin, I was sort of expecting that she would know, but she she knew how to make. So in her town, she's from near Bologna in Emilia-Romagna, and they are known for filled pasta. I mean, it's really the fresh pasta capital of Italy. Um, but she grew up eating like tortellini and brodo and uh, classic tortelli or, or tortellone with ricotta and spinach and so she when her fiance visited actually they both taught me how to make tortelloni for the first time which yeah. was really fun but before that i was playing with like egg pasta doughs which i actually was really bad at in the beginning and um through a lot of research and a lot of youtube videos watching old grandmothers making pasta um I discovered the, well, discovered, I was introduced to the semolina and water dough, which is so much easier to master. It's like fortified, too. It's like a, it's not a thicker dough, but it just seems much more stable. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can really mess it up, too, and it still works fine. You just, like, add water to semolina basically until it feels like Play-Doh. You barely even need to knead it. I mean, it depends, you know, if you added a little less water, you need to knead it a little bit more and add a little more, you know, it's, it's a very, um, it's very easy to work with. I, do you have a YouTube account that, that cataloged all the grandmothers that you were watching? Um, no, I don't. (laughs) 
Because I, I'd love to see some of those videos because, you know, in, in this modern day, in, with technology, we're able to, you know, educate ourselves in a different way. But you, you've done that, but you've also gone back to Italy. Yeah, yeah. I um, Well, with the YouTube videos, <clears throat> excuse me, I... Uh, I was originally watching them to improve my Italian, and which is, you know, the word you can't do that with Italian grandmothers because they're all speaking in a dialect. <laughs> so, anyway, that I learned how to make pasta instead. Um, but the speaking of the videos, there is like a, a Yahoo food article with them all listed, actually. But I can send them to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sorry, your question about. You know. I don't know if there was actually a question because I'm, I'm pondering all, all these pasta shapes. And we were talking about Emilia, Emilia Romana and you, you said tortelloni. And I know tortelloni is the large version of tortellini, yes. correct? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are so many iterations and it's such a regional thing because There's I think... so many names. In I that mean, area too, it's like... Liz- even in the area. Yeah. Like tortelli or capalacci, they'll call it sometimes yeah. too. But um, like lasagna, I think, also comes from that area. And like tagliatelle and... So, you know, we, we think of pasta, or most people think of pasta in the U.S. as, you know, even just burrilla. You know, it comes in a box. It is, you know, rigatoni. It is penne. It is spaghetti. And mm. that's that's the limit of it. But you're talking about a small region of Italy. Yeah. I mean, making filled pasta is... It's, it's a big project and it's, you know, something you want to do with friends and family. Like in Italy, you know, they all get to, the whole family gets together to make the pasta and then they like freeze it. And, um, I mean, it's definitely something, I don't know. I feel like Americans are always looking for like the fast thing, uh, which actually assimilate in water dough totally is like to roll out the dough and roll out, you know, cavatelli or acchiette for two in the evening. is just as fast as making dried pasta, really because it takes like, you know, 10 minutes for the pasta to boil and takes you 10 minutes to roll it out. It boils in like one minute. Yeah. And plus the more hands you have to help you. I know you've had a couple parties and your friends come over and everyone makes pasta. Yeah. And you just stockpile that way. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's really enjoyable. It's, uh, I mean, it's, I think I was also most attracted to it in the beginning is because it's such a beautiful process, which is sort of how it ended up so much involved in my in my work. Yeah. And let's talk about your work because you, you say beautiful and you're a very visual person. Um, t- photography, when did that kind of introduce itself into your life? Well, uh, I didn't study photography in school. I studied politics because it was the major that I knew least about. <laughs> and after I graduated, um, actually my boyfriend at the time was into photography and had this camera that I started playing with. And I actually started a food blog at the time. I was basically like learning how to cook. I didn't know how to cook at all, but I knew I really liked food and I just started playing and I got better and better. And I decided, uh, after so long of not knowing really what I wanted to do, I was working like as an executive assistant at a tech company that I really wanted to get into photography. So I saved up money to live without pay for six months. I quit my job and I took an unpaid internship with a a fashion and celebrity portrait photographer. Yeah. And, um, after that, I, uh, I ended up getting a job with Tina Rupp, who I worked for her and her husband, Wendell Weber for about five years. And they really helped, you know, they taught me, (laughs) <laughs> I was able to, it was really nice to be able to, you know, work and learn. It's wonderful. The industry is so odd how people get in. I feel like it's always a weird 
uh, everyone has their own way, if yeah. you will. And um, I don't know, I was very lucky to, to find people that were willing to teach me what they needed me to know. Yeah, and I know Tina and Wendell's work, and it's very, you know, crisp, clean. Um, you know, and, and something is so starkly in focus, but it, it, it's comforting. Mm. And your images are similar in a way that they're so inviting. You know, they're not this commercial constructed thing. It feels like we're at your house making pasta with you. Which especially so often you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially my pasta work is just really, it's probably the, I've collaborated with some stylists, but for the majority of it, it's just all me, you know, in my kitchen playing basically. What was that first pasta shape that you made? Um, Cavatelli was the first one. It's the best introductory pasta shape, I would say. Um, whenever I'm teaching friends how to make it, it's what I always start with because it's it's also like super rewarding because you additionally learn how to make orecchiette at the same time because you just have to flip it over. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about those two shapes specifically. How do you make cavatelli? Uh, well, there are several different ways. There are several different types of cavatelli. You can just do it, you know, um, I've even made it with like four-year-olds. Anybody can make it. So you like roll out the semolina in a log, basically, uh, you know, the thickness of, I guess, your thumb. And you can shape it with a knife. You know, you cut it in, into about, I guess, a centimeter. Or, or you can, you know, the, the beauty of making fresh pasta by hand is you can choose. So what if you want to make a giant cavatelli because the food, you know, the... The sauce has large pieces. You can. Um, so you choose the size, obviously, and you roll the knife starting at the very top, which people love to start, like, on the pasta, but you actually have to start before it, or in, I think it's best this way, and then you just sort of roll it through with, uh, without being afraid to break the pasta because it's important. You'll get all those tears that grab onto the sauce yeah. if you do that. Um and, or, you know, you can use a knife, you can use your finger, you can roll it longer and use all your fingers. I love that four finger one. Yeah, yeah. the cavatelli lunghi, which yeah. is so beautiful. They look like little peas. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. And, you know, that's what's so amazing that these human imperfections, using your fingers rather than, you know, some mechanized extruder, um, creates these perfect little nooks and crannies for sauces to adhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's function in all this geometry of pasta. I mean, they're all very intentional shapes for what they're usually paired with. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's really personal because, you know, like I was saying before that you need to start the knife before. That's because it's my preference that it's not too toothsome. If you want it, if you want the outer edges to be, you know, have more of a bite, you start in the middle and you end a little early so that that part is thicker. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all about your own personal preference. And then Oriketti comes from that Yes, you know, once you're done, you put your thumb under the bottom and you just sort of like roll it out, uh, invert it, basically. Yeah. You know what I also love about Arachetti is obviously what it means. Yeah, little and ears. It, and there's so much pasta that actually is referencing, you know, a, a shape in the natural world, in the yes. real world. Yeah, it's true. I they mean, all have a story, practically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but did you know this entering into pasta or were you just like, I'm just going to do this shape? And then no, did you I research the history and etymology? And I've been researching, yeah. I mean, there's it's so endless. I mean, it feels like you can go on and on. <laughs> like even going back to uh, Tortelloni, for example, like I took a, a class about pasta in general, about egg pasta in Bologna with my cousin and with two of my cousins. Um, and 
so I cannot remember the name of the town, but there's in Bologna, there's a very specific way to shape it. And there's a small town outside of Bologna when you attach the two pieces at the bottom of the tortellone, one is twisted. <laughs> and they will argue that, you know, one or the other is the right way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Something so small. It's incredible. I to think me. there are 20 regions in Italy, so obviously uh, very diverse. You know, from north to south, east mm-hmm. to west, coastal, um, a very diverse terrain and ingredient base. And obviously, I'm assuming flowers differ, too, you know, from semolinas to barleys. And mm-hmm. so the actual structure of the pasta is different throughout the country. Where did you focus? Where did you start? I mean, was it about doing, um, you know, decorative shapes or was it stuffed pastas or was it long pastas, extruded pastas? I guess at first it was just about like trying to get it right, <laughs> get anything right, to be honest. Um, when I finally figured out, you know, got a hang of the semolina and water dough, it was less about uh, researching regions and more about just, I guess, visually I wanted to create more shapes. So I was researching and trying to find new shapes, not only to make, but to photograph. And with the egg dough, Honestly, I only feel like I recently even figured out how to properly make an egg dough. When I took that class in Bologna, they made it very clear. I learned a lot of new things about it that I never had known before. Such as what? uh, Well, for example, in Italy, they use specifically uh, eggs, specific eggs for pasta. There's like pasta eggs that you buy at the store and the regular eggs. And uh, they're a little bit larger. There really are ideal eggs here. They're really... uh, bright orange yolks and uh, the weight in particular 60 grams they're almost always 60 grams so there's uh, 60 grams of eggs and 100 grams is that right I think it's 100 grams of flour 60 grams of liquid yeah and you add uh, a little water if you know it doesn't reach 60 grams and anyway with that like for me the I really prefer making pasta by hand. So being able to make it by hand and be, have it be pleasant was really important to me. And if you screw up the ratio between liquid and flour, you get it's very easy to get like a, a gluey dough or if it's less, a really hard dough to work with. You're sitting there like breaking your back trying to roll out this pasta. And with this particular balance, it's a very pleasant dough to knead. Yeah. It's, you know, more. it becomes more soft. And um, another thing I thought was so interesting, they told me when you're rolling it out, to know when it's done. Because, you know, they say you have to roll it out until, like, what, it bounces back at you or whatever. You can cut it open, you look inside, and you'll notice that, it, it, like like a tree trunk, there are all these sort of like lines going around and around that, that you know, because you're constantly folding it over. But if there are air bubbles left in the dough, it still needs to be, you know, you have to keep going. Yeah, and that's where the visual aspect of being a photographer plays into the tactile, you know, making pasta dough. Yeah. Those two, two worlds, you know, uh, connect in some way. We're going to actually take a quick break and talk more about Fata and Casa, making pasta by hand. Yes. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Tegel. We'll be right back.
Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, with Linda Pugliese. Pugli, Pugliese. Pugliese. <laughs> a wonderful pasta by hand expert and fantastic commercial photographer as well. And, you know, it's funny that, that the blending of those two words, the tactile and the visual, um, there was obviously a need in your life to do something that wasn't digital photography per se. And, you know, your cousin introduced herself at the perfect time in your life to kind of have that. Exploring shapes visually, exploring different pastas, uh, not only is the finished shape beautiful, but the process. And you photograph, you know, from blending the dough, kneading the dough, all these wonderful methods. Um, when you set up a shot, like, how, how do you conceptualize what is the most beautiful part of pasta making? What is the best angle for that dish? I think for me, the making of the pasta, the the kneading of the dough, the rolling it out, I think for me that's the most beautiful. I, I don't know why, because it's always this sort of organized mess. <laughs> it's... Especially when there are a lot of people making pasta. It's really a big mess. It's, uh, it's beautiful to see how they're shaped also. It's also a way for me to like educate people. I'm, maybe it seems silly, but I, I feel like so many... In America, it's so common to make the egg dough, make tagliatelle, and that's like the end of it. If people want to make fresh pasta. And sh- by showing how it's made you know, people can realize that, you know, it's really not that difficult. You don't even need any sort of tools, you know? Um, what, what tools I, do you need other than your hands? Maybe a knife. That's really it. It really is. Yeah. I mean, well, it depends. I shouldn't say that. It depends on what type of pasta you're making, but you know, you don't need anything fancy. You can use like a chopstick if you want to make, uh, what is, I can't even think of the one. Um, like gamelli or the, I can't, I'm awful. My memory is so bad. So bad. You have Luckily, no idea. Luckily, you have a website and a blog, you know, <laughs> fatancasa.tumblr.com to be able to reference. Yes, which I've been terrible about <laughs> updating lately. But um, it has been really nice to sort of catalog everything there. Uh, Michael Hranek actually is the one that told me to start that blog. Yeah. <laughs> and I listened to him. Um, he's a, also a great photographer and he's an editor at Condé Nast Traveler now. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's nice to be able to put my recipes somewhere, uh, even you know, even though they are quite simple. I'm always sort of trying to master the simple. <laughs> yeah. So, what you are know? you trying to master right now? What are your shapes and sausages? Um, it's, there's nothing really right now that I'm super focusing on as far as pasta goes. I did actually find a new pasta book recently, which is always something that jump starts. You know, jump starts everything. Uh, and I was reading about the history of pasta. I'm such a geek about this. What stuff. is that I book? I read about it forever. Of course, I can't remember the name. As I told you, my memory is so bad. But it's an older book I picked up in a in a um, used bookshop on Mercer Street <laughs> just yeah. a few days ago, actually. And it's super interesting. Uh, they talk about you know how the semolina is made with the endosperm of the <laughs> kernel and everything which is something i researched for a while i yeah, wanted to mill the, my own the semolina. middlings is that what they call it they call it the middlings of durham wheat or something oh like really that. yeah i yeah. didn't hear that actually yeah i've always loved the term the middlings you know and that's a great thing it, it has such a long history pasta making i think really yeah. neapolitan uh, cuisine goes back to the fourth century something 
Oh, yeah, it's really old. And they were saying, like, you know, the first pastas were uh, sweet. It was with, like, sugar and spices. And you would eat it with your hands and, like, street food in the streets of of Napoli. Yeah. And now we have such modern shapes and, you know, and flavors as well. But, uh, uh, like, radiatore is, is a radiator. And I believe it was developed in the 1960s by some industrial designer. Probably, uh, yeah. Um, Partially to resemble radiators, partially mm-hmm. to actually, again, have sor- sauce adhere to it better. Because a lot of pastas on the market were, you know, kind of flat, you know, and long, linguinis and, you know, capellinis that were too thin to, you know, yeah. have a good pesto or ragu kind of just like mix in there. Yeah, that's always really important to me, too, which is something, again, that I really love about rolling out your own pasta. You have the opportunity to put all of those, like, tears, you know, so that it'll grab the sauce. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite, like, complex shapes to make? It's a very good question. I really like making trofie. Oh, it's one the, of my favorite yeah, pastas. I have no idea how to make it, though. It's it's pretty hard. I think I really love making it because it took me so long to figure out how <laughs> to do it properly. And you have to sort of take the... What is this? The heel of your pinky and, like, run it along... It's sort of hard to describe with words, to be honest. Yeah. But uh, it comes out like a little corkscrew. Yeah. And there, though I can't make that much of it, it kills my hands, but it's fun. Yeah. Super fun to make. And I think, like, tortelloni, I really, really enjoy making, too, just because it's you know, pretty close to my heart with my family there. Uh, they're really my only family in Italy that's regularly making fresh pasta at home. So, I mean, we touched on Emilia Romana, a little lasagna tagliatelle there as well. Um some of my favorite pastas, I love eggplant, and I, I've been to Sicily before, and I don't think they even have a real defined pasta shape that's from Sicily that I can think of offhand, but, like, you get alla norma, you get caponata mm-hmm. from there. And I love pasta alla norma. You know, it needs a specific kind of shape as well to kind of fold into because the chunks of eggplant are big and you know too big mm-hmm. and i bounce back and forth i'm like i like it with a thin pasta no i like it with a rigatoni and it's all chunky um do you have any preferences that are outside the norm of you know classical italian pairings i mean i really love it with orecchiette but for me i think i almost love everything with orecchiette so i think it's my favorite one yeah <laughs> other shapes like rotelli wagon wheel Lumanche almost feel a little kitschy sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, the what are the Lumanche? The snails. Yeah. Um, Mezzalunas, you know, half moons. But at the same time, they must have been developed for a reason at some point in time. Have you ever thought about making your own shape? Um, I've thought about it. I think it really would involve just sitting there and playing with the dough more than anything. Uh, I feel like most shapes get classified underneath, what is it, malfatti, you know, just poorly made. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of, uh, it's it's hard to answer because, for example, the cavatelli that I really love to make is like a, I feel like my particular cavatelli is different in shape than a lot of other people's cavatelli. And it's for a visual reason. Yeah. Um. I really love the ends to be really pointy and it to be more of like an oval sort of vaginal shape. It's as weird as it is to say, but it looks really like that. Um, you know, I don't know. You you really have it in your hands to, to play. And I, 
I haven't really made up my own shape, I will say. Yeah. But I've always I would wondered love that. To. Yeah, I've always <laughs> wondered that. And then you get to go to, you know, the patent office and be like, I have my own pasta now. You know, the- there are all sorts of things you could do, you know, in simple things. Like, for example, farfalle, like you could make like a long, I'm sure that somebody's done it. I don't know that I've ever seen it, but like a long, if you take pappardelle, for example, and you just pinch it in several different places, you yeah. get like farfalle lungi. I don't know who made it up. <laughs> I actually I think farfalle is my favorite shape. You know, it's, it's a little bow tie but mm-hmm. it, i think it's, it's a butterfly i mean yeah um but i grew up you know in new york and ashkenazi jew and my grandmother would always make kasha varnishka and kasha varnishka was only with bow ties yeah so like i grew up just loving bow ties which then i later found out were butterflies and mm-hmm. have this much longer history than this you know very like buckwheat grody comforting jewish dish yeah it's a shape that i think i don't make enough i actually really love it and especially when it's made fresh it has this really delicate bite about it yeah and And i mean so you kind of have to deconstruct to figure out how certain shapes are made and i don't think i've ever made farfalle and i can see it as a big rectangle and you have to cut it on the side so it has that little ribbony effect you could or you don't have to yeah sometimes just like a flat bow tie. Yeah, it's yeah. so funny because when you mention it, I didn't. I had forgotten about that part of the farfalle. I always, when I do it, I just cut it into like you know stamp size shapes yeah. or whatever and squeeze. Yeah, the middle. And it's that wonderful little pinch. Yeah, you know, and I, I've I've been to some factories that actually do a lot of extruded pastas, and I've never seen farfalle. I mean, I'm sure it happens, obviously, but there's just something special knowing that every someone pinched each piece of pasta. For yeah, you. yeah. A friend of mine. Uh, this photographer assistant I used to work with always loved the fact that you could always see, like, for example, in Cavatelli Lunghi or Arquete, you could see the fingerprints on every single, you know, you could see where the fingers were in every one. It sort of puts a bit, a little bit of love, a little bit of love in it. Yeah. And when you set up these, you know, shots and you show the procedure, which you love, um, you show the finished dish. How do you make it so it's not, you know, repetitive, not a redundant thing, just a pasta with a sauce in a bowl over and over? That's such a good question. Um, I'm not really sure. I try and I try and make. Generally, when I'm doing it, I try and do it in a way that it's the person. It's like the chef, you know, the person that's eating it, or the person. Excuse me, the person that made it is the one eating it. Like I did a story for uh, Sweet Paul, where I did a filled pasta story, and a lot of the platings are on the same surface that I made the pasta, and there's still flour all over the surface, and I wanted it to be like a, I don't know, like the chef's pasta in a way, um, and it's sort of a, a theme I think in my a lot of my plated work. I like it to be. Because the making of it is my favorite part, I like to have the mess around still yeah. there, even with the plated shot. I mean, let's talk about Italy a little bit more when you learn certain pastas over there. Where would you eat? Formally in another room or in the same kitchen that the pasta shapes were made? You know, my family in Italy, it is so hard to get them to let me cook with them. <laughs> it is practically impossible. <laughs> so it's always in the other room. My family in Emilia-Romagna, I finally got them to let me make pasta with them because they know how much I love it. <laughs> and I'm very, very close with my cousin that was living with me. Obviously, we're practically like sisters. Uh, but I have also a family in Naples and in Sicily, which is actually so wonderful to have them in, in you know, the south, the middle, and the north so I can have exposure to all of these different types of food. Uh, but it's... I still haven't had the opportunity to really cook with the family in Sicily and Naples. <laughs> yeah. 
And, but they but know I'm you hoping. love it. They follow they your do. blog. We'll send them this episode to you to try to convince <laughs> them. We'll have Jack uh, translate the whole thing into Italian for us. Yeah, you could do it. We got the thumbs up on that. Um, you know, pasta is such an inherent, and my wife's going to laugh when I say this, intrinsic part of, you know, our food community, of our food lives. Um, so much so that when we got married, she gave me this uh, this this cartoon by Charles Barsotti. Uh, from the New Yorker, which mm-hmm. I'm assuming you and many listeners not, might know, but it's a, a piece of pasta. It's a piece of um, rigatoni on a phone. Mm-hmm. And the caption says, Fusili, you crazy bastard. How are you? <laughs> and like, it gets me every freaking time. Like, it's one of the, and we have it hanging and I see it and I'm just like, there's this attachment not only to the humor of that, but to pasta in general like we all grew up with macaroni Mm -hmm. with elbows with you know and not that we've taken it for granted but there's this wonderful exploration that can be had and that you've been going through such an exploration i think that's why it like has my interest constantly because you can never stop learning about the regions the different names it's really seemingly endless (laughs) where else in italy do you want to travel Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I really want to travel more in Emilia-Romagna. I mean, I was lucky enough to go on assignment for Sweet Paul magazine and um, see the production of prosciutto and parmigiano and balsamic vinegar. And uh, it just made me want to research even more that area. I thought it would sort of like check it off, but in fact, (laughs) it made me even more curious. It's just, it's incredible, the richness of culture in Italy, I mean, it just changes from like 10 miles to 10. It just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I was making pasta, uh, I mean, pesto the other day. You know, there are, I usually make it with whatever nuts, with whatever herbs, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and just. In fact, with, I hate making it with basil. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I, I prefer I, parsley. I, I like parsley. I like a little bit of mint, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. mixing it all together. And I'm just like, this is so Italian. But I'm like, no, this is actually so Ligurian. And I'm like, no, this is absolutely has nothing to do with that (laughs) pesto and with that region. This is just, you know, riffing on that. But the ingredients, again, like you talk about Parmigiano, balsamic, being from a specific place. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny how regional the food is, but how secular the food is. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. The regionality, for example... The family in Naples, I remember when I was visiting them from... So when I was on this trip, I stayed a little longer, and I I spent time in Emilia-Romagna with my cousin, and then we went down to Naples, and we brought them this beautiful balsamic vinegar, very expensive, you know, old one. And they, like, don't know what to do with it, because (laughs) it's not part of their cuisine, you know? I don't even know if they'll ever use it. (laughs) Yeah, it's just funny, because, you know, we have this expected... uh, We have this assumed pantry in our heads of, mm-hmm. you know, what Italian food is, what goes with pasta. Is it like a ragu? And I mean, the brand name ragu sauce, mm-hmm. you know, with Berea. I mean, that's what we mainly grew up on here in the States. And just being able to learn how to make it by hand opens up this whole new world. This yeah, very I mean, even the sauces, like the simplicity of it, you know, I remember when I was in Sicily a few years ago, my cousin made me this dish, which is today my favorite thing ever. And it's literally made with broccoli 
and garlic, and that's it. You boil the broccoli, in, in the words of my cousin, until it's dead. Like, longer than you would ever boil oh, broccoli. Oh, I know this well, yes, yes. <laughs> and then you put it in a pan with oil and... Well, I use also use anchovies. I put anchovies in everything. Uh, and garlic. And you mash it down, and you keep adding pasta water until it becomes a sauce, essentially. Yeah. And it's so... I don't know. I've always loved broccoli. Everyone always made fun of me when I was a kid for loving broccoli. Uh, and, you know, with toasted breadcrumbs with orecchiette. And yeah. it's so delicious. I think that's exactly how I had it when I was in Sicily, and they kept on calling it affogato. Oh, really? And we're like, why, why is that? It's like, uh, because you drown the shit out of, you know, ah. the, the broccoli until it's mush. And then, okay. But, I mean, where else can you overcook a green vegetable and make it taste that delicious? Exactly. Just kind of blew my mind. Um, again, your blog, fataencasa.tumblr.com, but your website, Linda Pugliese, has some stun- stunning imagery. Thank uh, you. You've been shooting some cookbooks uh, for really fascinating clients, and I'm just excited to see what you do next because I know there is a very personal project or cookbook coming in the wings someday. <laughs> you know, the exploration of, of your family, your life through pasta, through Italy, and you know, that, that's why I keep on coming back, because it's just this ever-evolving, you know, opening. Uh, it's it, it just kind of a really great life to see unfold. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, I really would love to do a book at some point. What it will be yet, I don't really know. <laughs> um, but I do have a little, actually, when my cousin was here living with me, we had a little book that we worked on she really loved to cook and we were sort of learning together in a way and uh it's funny because so in in Italy the mothers they really want to keep a tight hold on you you know it's the food is the way to keep you coming back it's to show love and it's also like a little bit of a leash I feel like in a way and so we would constantly be asking her mother for recipes and they would always like be wrong they wouldn't work (laughs) uh and so we were taking her recipe that she sent us and comparing it to this uh, Italian website. It's called Jalatza Ferrano, which I reference really regularly for recipes. And we would take the two recipes and we would sort of combine them and work on them together. And we have this book that we were, you know, writing together in a way to sort of catalog all of these tests that we were doing. Yeah. And I've continued to add to it, even though she's no longer around. Yeah. Well, I would like to see that someday. And like you said, um, your work keeps me coming back in the same way that the misinformation of a mother or grandmother not giving you the right way to make a dish does. <laughs> so thank you, and everyone should check out Linda's work and make pasta by hand, goddammit. Goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Thursday, Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.